Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada. Today, we're continuing our series, The Progress of the Gospel, with Dr. John Newfeld, And we'll be hearing a message entitled, Reasons for Worship. So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, as we join Dr. Newfeld right now. When we think about God, there are two equally dangerous reactions. One is worship without theology. Now, sometimes it can even be done in excellence, worship that entertains and even inflames the emotions, but is devoid of biblical richness. This is the kind of thing, from my vantage point, that seems entirely my emotion-centered. And those of us who have soaked the Bible into our lives find this to be empty. No biblical truths are being expressed, no richness of theological insight, no repetition of biblical concepts, only an attempt to engage emotions without engaging the heart of the gospel. But there's an equally dangerous reaction to God. It's what John Stott once called theology without doxology. It's theology that's only an intellectual interest in God. It's critical, it's objective, it's cool and detached. It's theology that continues to discuss concepts that fewer and fewer people understand. It's theology that uses phrases and concepts heavily borrowed from the world of philosophy without the impulse to cry holy and to fall in tears before the one who lives forever and ever. You know, we've come to the end of our study of Romans 11, and at this moment, the entire book of Romans reaches a transition. I've called Romans 1 to 4 the heart of the gospel because there, Paul has described universal sinfulness, the death of Christ as a wrath-bearing sacrifice on our behalf, and then the doctrine of justification by faith. Next, Romans chapters 5 to 8 is a section that I call the power of the gospel. For those four chapters deal with the matter of growth into holiness or sanctification. There we learn about the mortification of the flesh, or in, in plain language, putting to death the misdeeds of the body. We learn about the power of the flesh and it, what it means to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ and how to walk according to the Spirit. And I've called Romans chapters 9 to 11 the progress of the gospel. And, and here Paul explains God's sovereign choice of his elect, the mystery of Israel's hardness of heart, and how all of this works to the advantage of worldwide proclamation of the gospel. See, all that's left, and that is in Romans 12 to 16, is what I call the lifestyle of the gospel or the practical implications of the gospel or how the gospel actually works its way out in daily matters. And so the heavy theology of the first 11 chapters of Romans then gives way to very practical matters such as spiritual gifts and marks of Christian living, dealing with secular governments, dealing with non-essentials where we are given freedom to act according to our own conscience, you know, and so forth. But rather than simply moving from theology to application, Paul finds that he just can't do that. I mean, having shared with us that God has revealed to him the heart, the power, and the progress of the gospel, having stood on the mountaintop and gazed at the depth and breadth of God's saving works, Paul falls to his knees in adoration and he worships. That's what worship is. It's the impulse of adoration. It's the expression of delight and the pleasure that we experience in God. 
It was C.S. Lewis who said, to praise God fully, we must suppose ourselves to be in perfect love with God, drowned in, dissolved by that delight which, far from remaining pent up within ourselves, flows out from us. And that's what Paul does in the end of Romans 11. Rather than simply explaining the revelation of God's salvation in Jesus, we find Paul reveling in and delighting in the revelation of God's salvation. So let's read Romans 11, 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Simply looking at it, we find Paul's worship informed by Scripture. I notice he defines at least four attributes of God found in a systematic study of the Bible. And then he quotes two passages of Scripture, one from Isaiah 40 and the other from Job chapter 36. And then he concludes with a theological affirmation. And yes, all of that is laden with the language of rich emotion, a man whose heart is overflowing with the pleasure and the delight that he finds in his God. So if we might, let's watch Paul in worship. First, we notice in verse 33 that Paul begins with the attributes of God. Let's take them one at a time. I'm first, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God. Now, the wisdom of God is God's ability to use the best possible means to accomplish his goals. Now, as we have seen, it was God's intention that his gospel would be preached throughout the whole world. And when God chose how to do this, we find him entering a voting booth. That's the story of election of Israel and the preaching of the good news. And all those are a description of God's chosen methodology. I mean, contemplating that, Paul shouts out, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God. But then Paul mentions the depth of the riches of the knowledge of God. So here Paul affirms that God knows all things with infinite insight, but he also knows how his gospel will impact the people of the earth. God knew that the method he chose to reach the world would have the maximum impact. He knew that his methods would produce results. Next, Paul mentions the unsearchable judgments of God, meaning here that God's sovereign decisions are based upon his knowledge and his wisdom. And then finally, his inscrutable ways means that God uses at all points his plans into perfect effect. Paul is overwhelmed with what he knows of the attributes of God, his wisdom, his knowledge, his judgment, and his ways. Now, of course, the book of Romans is full of remarks made about the attributes of God. In chapter 2, verse 4, Paul mentions God's kindness, his forbearance, and his patience. In chapter 9, verse 23, he mentions the riches of his glory. In chapter 10, verse 12, he simply makes reference to God's inexhaustible greatness. So one can see that as Paul is deeply investigating our salvation, he's constantly being drawn into the beauty and the loveliness of God's attributes. And in this, we see one of the important aspects of worship. See, worship is reveling in the attributes of God. It identifies specific attributes and allows the mind to savor them. 
when we worship, we might reflect on God's sovereignty or his love or his holiness or his moral perfections or his justice or his wrath or his fierce jealousy, his grace, his power. I mean, on and on it goes. Worship by its very nature is God-focused, using biblical concepts and expressing in them absolute pleasure. Now, think of those moments in your life when you encounter something that allows you to forget yourself and revel in the splendor of something more magnificent than you'd ever imagine. I mean, I remember such an encounter standing on top of Mount Mauna Loa. It's on the big island of Hawaii, and I'm looking through a telescope, and I'm gazing at Saturn. See, I forgot myself, and I was overwhelmed by the grandeur of God's heavens, which declare his glory. Well, that's thinking of God the Creator. I mean, indeed, one part of worship is simply to stare at the revelation of the attributes that God has given to us in the Bible. But then now Paul moves to specific statements about God from two sections of Scripture. We notice that first he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 13. Let me read it in context, verses 12 and 13. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? See, that last question, who offers God counsel, needs to be considered. I mean, a counselor should not be thought of as a therapist, but rather that every king or ruler would surround themselves with advisors. And when a major decision was to be made, a wise ruler would look to a number of counselors to step forward and consider their wisdom. See, the question of who should counsel the one who measures the water in the hollow of his hand and weighs the mountain on his scales demands a clear answer. No one counsels God. And Paul says, think about that. What could you and I offer to God? Our wisdom? Our knowledge? Now, as we think about contributing absolutely nothing to God, Paul gives us another verse, and that's from Job 35, verse 7, where it says, If you're righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Again, the answer is simple. Nothing that I do contributes anything to God. I can't counsel him. He needs none of my wisdom. I can't help God. He needs nothing from me. And yet, I who contribute not one thing to God have received from his hand the gospel. Athens, Ephesus, Patmos, Santorini, a few of the locations we'll be visiting April 24th to May 5th on our New Testament Greece by land and by sea tour. Eight days by land, four by sea, with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfelt, Phil Calloway of Laugh Again, and award-winning inspirational musical artists, The Weebs. Sign up soon as we only have 20 guest spots remaining. So call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. We've been watching the Apostle Paul in worship. And there's a time in worship when we concentrate on how we react to God. For instance, Psalm 42, verse 1 says, As the deer pants for a flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. 
So there the psalmist emphasizes not so much God himself, but his response to God, the effect that God has on his longings and his highest aspirations. That is a very legitimate form of worship. And there are other times in which we may even lament the coldness of our own hearts toward God. And still at other times, we worship when we consider the works that God has done and when we observe his hand in the created order. And still at other times, we may even worship by confessing our sins and reminding ourselves of the promises that God has made to us. Worship is not a monodimensional experience. But if we're to do worship correctly, we'll have to follow the lead of Scripture. There are portions of the Bible that mentor us in our experience of worship. We soon learn that we don't worship God on our terms. Rather, we allow him to train us as to how we worship him. Now, in Romans 11, 33 to 36, Paul worships in such a way that simply leaves Paul out of the picture and allows his view to be completely consumed by God himself. All thoughts of self are forgotten as Paul stands in amazement of a God who has given us the gospel. He's completely enraptured in God. The only mention that Paul makes of self is when he remembers that he contributes nothing to God and that God's splendor is in no way enhanced by him. And as Paul ends this brief section of worship, gazing at the loveliness of God, he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The idea that all things are from God is deeply rooted in Scripture. When John reflects on Jesus, he says, and I'm reading from John 1 verse 3, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All made things, which means all things outside of God are made by Jesus, who is himself God. Now, when Paul says, for from him are all things, now he might be simply referring to creation, but we need to remember the context in which Paul is saying what he does. Paul's been speaking about the gospel, of God's electing a people unto himself. Salvation comes from God. Now, at first blush, that might seem rather obvious, but remember the previous verse, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. I mean, the point has been that we contribute nothing to God. And that's the issue when we also say salvation comes from God. I contribute nothing. Now, to those who misunderstand, we might argue, but but have we not believed the gospel? Well, yes, we have. And have we not agreed to share that gospel with others so that they might believe? Well, yeah, that's also true. We have. But according to Paul, this contributes nothing to God. One of my favorite examples is that of Hudson Taylor, who spent a lifetime abandoning everything for the sake of the gospel so that the people of China might hear. By Hudson Taylor's own testimony, he said, I never did anything for God. Indeed, he was right. You know, it's a funny thing, this thing called believing and this thing called obedience and this thing called responding to God's call. When we do these things, we offer nothing to God. You know, for myself, after I've spent a lifetime in gospel ministry, I've got to say this. All of it has been for my own good. It's been God's blessing in my life. On my own, see, I'm so prone to self-centeredness and selfishness, but gospel ministry and the joy of believing has changed me. 
God offers me a response to his gospel, not because he needs it, because I need it. No, no. All things come from God. Nothing comes from me. Now, secondly, all things come through him. I mean, the meaning here is very similar to saying that all things come from him. But even though the difference is subtle, it's still significant. To say that all things come from God is to say that he's the source of all things. But to say all things come through God, well, that's to say that all things are accomplished by him. See, my faith in the gospel is accomplished through him. Philippians 2 verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I mean, any believer who knows his or her God will say that with a great deal of confidence. Lastly, Paul adds that all things not only come from God and through God, but all things point to God. That's why Paul is so quick to add, to him be the glory. That's the rightful credit for all things belong to God. I know that sometimes when we think of the word glory, you know, we allow our eyes to kind of cloud over and we simply say, well, you know, that's one of those religious things that we say. But glory has to do with credit. All of us who have ever gone to a movie know about the credits that appear at the end. They not only tell us the list of actors and actresses, but also the producers, I mean, the camera people, the writers, the people that oversee costumes, the the people that build and draw out sets. I mean, the list of credit just goes on and on. And the reason for that is that movie makers want to make sure that we understand that the glory for the film must not just fall on one or a few people that saw the movie. Glory's got to be shared by others who brought this about. But this is where things are different in God. He shares no credit with anyone else. That's why human pride is so offensive. It would be like someone who merely watched a movie or enjoyed a movie insist that their name should be added to the list of credits. But the filmmakers would rightly say, no, that person doesn't get credit. And when it comes to our salvation... There can be but one name on the list of credits. To him alone be the glory. I mean, we as human beings need to stop pretending that everything depends on us, but rather we need to acknowledge that everything depends on God. And in essence, that's why the first 11 chapters of Romans ends with such worship. So let's get practical. You know, I've been a pastor for many years, and for many years at the end of each ministry year, we would celebrate those who had been involved in ministry in some fashion. I mean, they'd include Sunday school teachers and youth workers and parking attendants. Well, the list just went on and on. And as a church, we wanted to thank them for their sacrifice and their commitment to the ministry. Now, were we wrong in doing that? Should we have said, no, no, you don't get any credit. I mean, God gets it all. You know, for some people, They think it's wrong to thank people. I mean, they fear that people will develop an ego over this. And so I decided to do a bit of a study on that theme, and I found out how often Paul gives thanks to certain people. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 to 3. There he writes, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can see that Paul has no difficulty mentioning the virtues that he sees in others. In Colossians 1 verse 4, Paul mentions the love that the Colossian Christians had for all the saints. In Philippians 1 verse 5, he mentions how grateful he is for the partnership he shares in the gospel with them. And in Ephesians 1 verse 16, Paul mentions that he has not stopped giving thanks to God for the Ephesian believers. But I also notice how his compliments or his list of credits 
differ from the way that most of us are accustomed to doing it. See, the overarching theme of all of Paul's compliments is that he's giving thanks to God for the accomplishments of believers. When he sees a spirit of faithfulness or of spiritual growth or of sacrificial giving or of partnering in the gospel, Paul's constantly returning thanks to God for the accomplishments of people. Well, it's because he's always aware that all that is done by another happened because God caused it to happen. And so he finds no difficulty in singling people out for praise, but he worships God for what has been done. I think this is a great lesson. I wonder what would happen if we trained each other when we thank people for their faithfulness, that we changed our language and we said to them, look, I see your faithfulness and I have fallen down on my knees and I have worshiped God because I can see that he has caused this to happen in you. And I think when we hear that kind of a thing being said to us, we're so encouraged by that because others see that God is being gracious to us. So in this way, we might learn whether we're talking about our salvation or whether we're learning to be servants and followers of Jesus, it is from him and through him and to him that all glory rightfully belongs. Heavenly Father, oh, the depths of your wisdom and your knowledge. How unsearchable are your ways. Teach us, O Lord, to worship you when we have studied theology well. In Jesus' name, amen. John, let's talk about worship. You know, so much has been said over the years, over the centuries, I guess sometimes the themes haven't changed too much. But here we're talking about worshiping God and His worthiness of our worship. You know, Ben, sometimes I wonder uh, the amount of uh, worship wars that uh, congregations have had. I've spoken to worship pastors who will say, you know, constantly the style of music that they choose is such a, you know, a flashpoint in a local church. And I've sometimes wondered why, you know, music styles get to be so important rather than the actual words that we express towards God or how we learn to think about him. So I'm wondering whether that should be our flashpoint, but somehow it's just not been that. No, I, I don't think it has. And yet, you know, it will cause division within the church. And it, it makes you wonder, where is our focus? Is our focus in the right place? Are we actually reading or, or taking in what's being written through these worship songs? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, for one, I mean, you and I both grew up in the time of the hymns, and I love some of those old hymns, and there are some modern choruses that I deeply love as well. Anything that inspires me to think about and give glory to God, recognizing that I need to thank God for all things because he is the author of all things, and to remember what he has done, and so allow my heart to overflow with this passionate love, this overflowing emotion towards God. This is what we must teach one another to do. Indeed, that's what God requires of us. That's where our attention needs to be on the worship of our God. Well, back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. There's never been a more popular ministry resource over the years than our annual Bible reading calendar, and this year will be no exception. So our 2017 Bible scripture reading calendar entitled Defining Moments of Faith is now available. 
with a theme based on the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, the calendar depicts and describes many of the most picturesque and relevant locations and introduces some of the most influential people of the period. But the calendar's prime goal remains the same, to guide you through reading the Bible in a year using Dr. John Neufeld's unique reading plan. So ask for your copy today, one free per household by calling 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Quantities are limited, so don't delay.